world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture. Here he is, Michael Savage. do if you had the microphone to inspire people i think about the season that we're in the season of peace and the season of love i think of christmas christianity is the religion of peace christianity is the true religion of peace islam is not a religion of peace christianity is the religion of peace christianity is the religion of peace the religion of peace turn the other cheek do unto others as you would have them do unto you. These are messages that come from Christianity. What can you do? What can you do in an age of deceit and lies and terror? What you can do is reaffirm your own religion. Instead of letting your church become a mosque or a, a, a Unitarian uh, a meeting place or a drunk tank on uh, Tuesday nights, you can go to church again. However hokey that sounds, however cynical you are, however hard you are, however unneeding you think you really are, you know in your heart that there's something missing in you. You know that you crave something greater. Because the human being is not a dog. The human being is not a bear. The human being is not a fly. The human being is not an eagle. We are unique creatures. And we need something different than the bear, the dog, the snake, and the eagle. What is that thing that we need? It's that thing called God. Savage. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. These creatures, they don't know God. They are of God. They were created by God. But they don't really need God. That's why they're lower animals. We, as higher animals, need higher things than just food and fornication. Unfortunately, our society, primarily because of the degenerates in the media, have fallen lower than the snake. The media has promulgated the idea and promoted the idea that we only need f food and fornication. And so when people are empty, that's what they seek, food and fornication. And when they're really empty, what happens? They become drug addicts. They start with marijuana, they end up with heroin, crack, you name it. 
What is it about drugs? What is it that human beings are seeking in drugs? Why do they go for drugs? As God has been driven out of America, drugs have entered America. I know this has been said before. I get it. But what does an empty soul look to do? An empty soul looks to fill itself. Just as an empty vessel needs to be filled with a liquid to be complete. An empty human being needs to fill itself to be complete. And how does it fill itself? I know, again, many of you will laugh because you're cynical. It's through those things I'm talking about, inspiration. The musician finds the inspiration God knows where, and then has the inspiration to pick up the, the, the instrument. Do you think a musician can play one day without inspiration from somewhere? Unfortunately, so many musicians don't have that human inspiration that they seek, and they get it through drugs. I get that. I understand. It's true for many artists who don't understand that the greatest artists were not drug addicts. The greatest dr artists in the history of the world were not drug addicts. They were usually God addicts. Did you know that? Look at the greatest art in history. You'll find most of them were super religious people who literally saw God in their living room. And they took the power of God and it was transmitted through the paintbrush or through that piece of marble. How could a man like Rodin take a piece of inert stone and inside that stone see the essence of a human form and sculpt from that block of inert stone of marble the portrait of a human being that looks so real that a hundred years later I go and look at them in the museum and literally inside that carved eye I can see the person. How is that possible? How? My voice and my ability to move crowds is my gift, but it's also my burden. This is a power, the magical voice. It's a power I first discovered when I found out I could speak to the assembly in the first graded PS48 in a slum school in the Bronx. I found out that I enjoyed speaking to that crowd of kids. I wasn't afraid of them. I loved seeing their faces smile when I told a joke or made a, f a fool of myself. It didn't matter. I was a little clown, and they laughed. I liked that. Well, when I spoke with such a clear voice and wasn't afraid, the little pipsqueak that I was, and the crowd listened to me, I enjoyed that power. And I discovered something. I discovered I can move audiences, and that means I can change people's fates. As I learn later in life, it's not about just being a clown. It's not about entertaining people and making them laugh. It's about changing people's fates. It's a great gift and a great burden. I must tell you, I see as my last day in radio on my last day on earth. Would you believe that? I know you don't believe that. I know it's a, it's a form of reverse worship. But it's the only way to approach what I do and have any meaning. If I look at every show as though it's my last show, I look at my, my every book as my last book. That's a pretty big stress, by the way. But it also permits me to be fresh and new. I said again, and I'll repeat it again, some inspire through hate. Do I have to say who? Do I have to mention who inspires through hate and division? Do I have to say the names or the organizations that use hate and division as their stock and trade? Or through anger, rage, false righteous indignation? I've used all of them. In my 21 years, I've used every one of those emotions to move my audiences. Because every one of those emotions raged through me, or played through me, or danced through me. There's a story of Einstein. I love this story. Great, great physicist Einstein. 
at this point, he was quite famous, and he had, he had agreed to an audience with some man, I don't know who it was, was allowed to see him. The man came in, Einstein was sitting behind his desk, and he said, Herr Einstein, Herr Einstein, I realize what your theory of relativity means. It means that nothing is real. Nothing is real. So as the story goes, Einstein stood up slowly, walked over to him, and slapped him in the face. And he said, is that real? Now, you see what I'm saying to you. Don't get so disconnected from reality with your philosophy that you forget the danger you put yourself in, whether it means slipping on a sidewalk because your head is in the clouds or bicycling through an intersection and killing a civilian because you think you're so great, as occurs too often in San Francisco where there are no laws against these bicycle terrorists. Or, in fact, in many other ways, you can get so disconnected from your body that you have no reality, which leads us back again to how do I inspire you in an age where those who hate us want to kill us and, in fact, are killing us. I'm talking about inspiration to the savage nation and how to inspire without using what the left uses, which is hate and division, without using anger, rage, false righteous indignation, which the left uses on a daily basis. You say, where do I get inspiration from? I told you my father was a small businessman, owned a little small antique store in New York's Manhattan. And some of the stuff in there at that time was really good. I recognized it for what it was. I always had an eye for the good stuff. I could tell the difference between Doré bronze and, and let's say, pot metal, for example. I learned how to do that. Different type of metals, different type of clocks. He taught me to look at the hands of a piece of sculpture. He said, always look at the hands and the feet. You'll see whether they're good or bad. He taught me to look at paintings in the same way. Many artists can paint bodies. They can paint faces. They can't paint hands and feet. He was right. He was right about a lot of things. So I learned at the hands of an, uh, an intuitive, smart man with regard to things that are good and things that are not good. The point is the workmanship. The point is, is that things are preserved through generations that are beautiful whether it be a pair of dueling pistols or an antique statue or a painting. You look at the great art in Europe. What in the world does that not do for you when you go to Europe and go to Italy and see the great art in the churches, by the way? And here in America, in the churches, in the universities. And what are the illegitimate doing on these campuses today? The illegitimate who never belonged there in the first place are now screaming, rip down the art because it's racist art. But we have other stuff to talk about today. My did actually cook the food. It wasn't brought in in like a like a, a, a tray from McDonald's or wherever they bring it in from, Marriott Food Catering. In my day, they had like weird-looking women. I mean, they were like out of like mental institutions working. Remember, they looked, they looked like those dietitians. They didn't call dietitians. They worked in like the school kitchens. They were scary women. They were very pasty. They all looked like that they were like devil worshippers to me. I never wanted to touch any of their food, whatever they made, but that smell of the tomato soup. As I entered the PS49 in the Bronx, I think, whatever I went to. I go to the cafeteria like instant smack on migraine the minute I walked into the... Ugh, that smell of the tomato soup. I mean, if you're repainting your car, okay, you take a quart home, spill it on the hood, wipe it in, and like, you know, it's miracle wipe, takes the paint right off. <laughs> I don't know what they put in there. It must have been like gov you know, excess government tomatoes from Italy or something after the war. That they bought tomatoes from the Italian, who knows, they bought them underground tomatoes. They don't have them anymore, right? Now they're like basically from San Quentin. This new crop, these, this new crop isn't even like wacky. I mean, they give ex-cons jobs. I don't believe they got to have a job. Look, nothing wrong with that. But they're all voters. Motor voters, you know, they're motor voters. So here we are.
that smell of the chicken, I can still smell it. There was another smell that got me sick as a child. I'm thinking of like I'm doing my Proustian olfactory now. Uh, there's another smell from childhood that comes back. It's like Campbell's chicken noodle soup. It's like a mixed feeling, one homey, friendly, uh, the other side like MSG-ish, no good. Not equal to my mother's soup, which always gave me a migraine. And any soup that didn't give me a migraine, I didn't trust. Courtesy of Buddy Hackett. Now, he put it in another way. I was raised on such bad food that I had no idea that food was... I, I didn't know what good food was. If food did not leave me slightly dyspeptic with a migraine, I thought it was a bad meal. <laughs> it was so awful. I mean, it was high cholesterol, high salt impossible to believe they could feed a child food like that and not go to prison, you know, for, for child endangerment. I mean, you talk about school, it's no wonder I got a PhD in nutrition. I was like running for my life to try to figure out what had been done to me the previous 25 years. If you took a lab animal, let's say the, the, the arterial system in an animal that's closest to man is a pig or a rabbit, as I understand it, because I know that uh, Dr. McCulley at Harvard used rabbits in the 1950s to induce atherosclerosis, he denied them vitamin B6. Uh, he diminished their diets in B6 and almost immediately gave them a hardening of the arteries. You don't know about that. Your doctor doesn't want you to know it. He only wants to put you on Lipitor, so you become a cripple and need arthritis drugs after you have to take the Lipitor-related compounds. You start walking around like your uncle, you know, with a killer. So Dr. McCullough used the rabbit. But if you took a rabbit or a pig and you put them, God rest the soul, on the diet I ate as a child, the animal's dead in six months. So it's actually a miracle. I, I mean, I must have some superpowers that I could overcome what I was force-fed. From childhood, foods that my body rejected. I'll be right back. Savage. The Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I go out, I like to ride a bicycle. So I rode my bicycle to the mall, and I like to look at the people. Even though it's a small snapshot of suburban white middle America, it's still a snapshot of America. As a talk show host, you're basically living in your own world like a painter, truthfully, or anyone who works at home alone. If you don't see people, you can go out of your mind, you can go crazy, and you can start to distort reality. So I go to this place, I try to go once a day to one mall or another or walk the streets of San Francisco. I got to see people or I go nuts. So I see a woman go by with two beautiful children. They must have been a year old in the car, a double carriage. So I stopped and I said to her, oh, are they twins? 
I didn't even think, should I say it or not say it? Because you live in an age where if you say to someone, are they twins? They can call the police and say, you're, you're something wrong with them. He stopped me and asked me if they're twins. So I didn't even think. They were so beautiful. I stopped. And I said, oh, are they twins? And she said, yes. And she was so happy to tell me their names, Anastasia and Joey, a boy and a girl. You know what I said to her? You're a very lucky woman. And then as I walked on, I thought about something. When I was a kid, again, when I was a kid, people would stop women with babies and admire the babies and look at them and talk about them. And the mother felt good. You know, it's very hard being a young mother. It's one of the hardest things on earth. Their bodies have changed. They, uh, other than the supermodel who gained four ounces after pregnancy, most women's bodies get wrecked from, from, from pregnancy. So a woman goes through hell. Uh, during pregnancy and afterwards. And believe me, but we have other stuff to talk about today. We eat what we think are ethnic meals, but in fact, I am sorry to tell you, most of the ethnic meals that we're eating are not ethnic meals at all. Example, case in point, Italian food is not really Italian food uh, that the average Italian ate, let's say, 150 years ago in Italy. The Italian diet then was quite sparse. It might have been a whole grain spaghetti or a whole grain noodle on the farm with some vegetables with very little animal protein and perhaps some cheese products because they didn't kill the animal but literally they didn't slaughter the animal every time they ate a meal and what you're eating is holiday meals three times a day and you're getting the degenerative diseases uh, associated with uh, overly rich diets it's the same with almost every other ethnic group on earth and so you'd say Jewish food oh I'm gonna go to the deli and have a corned beef sandwich with a pickle and that's not Jewish food that is 19th century holiday Polish food Jewish food is, is uh, Yemenite food. You want to really eat Jewish food? Eat a Yemenite diet. That is the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. And what the Yemenites eat is what the ancient, Israel, the ancient Israelites probably ate. And that's why some of us wind up with diabetes and heart attacks so young, because we're eating diets that we're not adapted to. Did you know this? Say, oh, come on, how do you know that? How do you know that? How do you know any of this stuff? Oh, well, I trust my, my, my doctor. He tells me to eat what I want and just take a Lipitor. And then if I get sick from uh, any food, just take something to digest it. That's all. And if that doesn't work, uh, they'll cut us open and remove something. All right, well, you can live that way if you want. You know what I'm saying? While the pig, the crow, the squid, and like creatures are forbidden, are forbidden by the Hebrew dietary laws, saturated fats, sucrose, and chemical additives are the unclean or forbidden foods in the etiology of internal health of rational man, I wrote. Page 138 of The Skeptical Nutritionist. I'm a genius. I really am. Boy, I was smart when I was young. That's really a good paragraph. Look at that one. Where the pig, the crow, the squid, and like creatures are forbidden by the Hebrew dietary laws, saturated fats, sucrose, and chemical additives are the unclean or forbidden in the etiology of internal health of rational man. That's really good stuff. And then I wrote, I support tradition, but urge my religious friends to eliminate dangerous components of their foods developed and introduced long after biblical laws were written. But it's like talking to yourself. You go to a Jewish group, they're, they're sticking their, they're, 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 they're eating Stella d'Oro, a cake in their face every two minutes, a, a sweet, they wonder why they have diabetes, and they look so bad at 50-some. I'm serious. They've lost all concept of diet. You can't live that way. It's impossible. Some can. It is true, some people can eat anything. I call them nutritional rogues, by the way. These are the people who you say, oh, my grandfather lived to 104. You're full of <laughs> savage, because he ate everything you just said he shouldn't eat, and he drank a bottle of scotch. I said, so he's a nutritional rogue. You try it. Get back to me when you're 50.
See how long you last. Right? What else did I want to tell you about? I want to read your paragraph, introduction, why I am a skeptic. Oh, this is an interesting one. I quoted Galileo who wrote, there is no scientific work that only one man can write. Now, that was written by Galileo in the Middle Ages. Listen to this, Al Gore, you schmuck. Al Gore schmuck and every other putz in the academic establishment who said that all the science is in on global warming, schmucks, idiots. You don't even know what science means, you schmucks. Here's what Galileo wrote, putz. There is no scientific work that only one man can write, schmuck. Galileo wrote that, but oh, Al Gore said oh, all the science is in on global warming. And then the schmucks on MSNBC snickered and went, yeah. <laughs> Introduction, why I'm a skeptic. Food is such a personal thing, and how anybody can dare suggest diets for others continually shocks me. And repugnant cuisine is scarcely the road to health and long life, I wrote in 1983. One more paragraph. Let's see. Hey, oh, this is good. Now, there are fine books on becoming vegetarian. Some of my closest friends are vegetarians. That's a joke. Yet we must not seek to declare as an objective truth that the plant world holds our major key to longevity. It may be true that George Bernard Shaw, Tolstoy Wagner, Shelley Byron Thoreau, and other illustrious figures were vegetable eaters, but so was Hitler. In fact, the German dictator's manic depressive mood swings and associated unexpected aggressive outbreaks might easily have been somewhat controlled with a good dose of high-quality protein and unrefined carbohydrates and with a steady intake of a good vitamin and mineral supplement on a regular basis. Better, Hitler should have gnawed on a big leg of lamb once a day and had a glass of wine. The well-known photo of Hitler and Eva Braun at Berchtesgaden with the maniac passed out in an armchair after eating lunch is not an image the hypoglycemically attuned researcher is likely to forget, I wrote. Diet and behavior vary in too many people for us to look for a simple set of rules as our salvation from too intense swings of mood. So, I mean, I wrote some nice stuff. You know, Hitler was a vegetarian and didn't drink either. And he was always starving. The book was way ahead of its time. 1981, Macmillan Publishing, out of print. I still own the copyright, so don't rip it off. I think I'll reprint it now. Strategy for Designing a Nutritional Program. As a night, it's a good book. Not for sale. Not for sale. And I want to tell you that the word food fascism, the phrase, I, I think I coined it on page six. Food fascism. I was against it then. The bookstores aligned with correct diets for the unmet mass. The social engineers, you see, I was against them. And then I wrote, food fascism, like other varieties of the social disease, requires lieutenants to proselytize. Not wishing to participate in any form of totalitarianism, I wrote, I intend not to dictate a correct diet for a fictional reader. So let me read you something that I remember hearing when I was a child. He who plays his fife and eats his way will live to fife another day. Now what is that catchy rhyme mean he who plays his fife and eats his way will live to fife another day well it means that if you eat your way you're getting certain nutri nutrients which are life giving and longevity inducing what is whey it's the liquid remaining after the milk has been curdled and strained and turned into cheese there's a liquid that remains and it's usually discarded I believe now what's in the stuff that we throw out the cold whey well, it's rich in so many things, riboflavin, B12, magnesium, potassium, zinc, selenium. So he who plays his fife and eats his way will live to fife another day. It's the equivalent um, to eating whole grains as opposed to eating white bread. It's equivalent to eating brown rice as opposed to eating white rice. You know, beriberi was rampant in Asia when they ate white rice. 
until uh, they found out that all of the nutrients that were being thrown out in the husk of the rice were the nutrients required to prevent, for example, rickets. You, you know, that's an old thing you learned in high school, probably. I don't even know if they teach that anymore. Right now, they give you a pill instead. Everything they tell you to eat garbage, live like a lab rat, and, t- and take a pill. And then if you get sick, go to the quack and get six more pills. That's all. But those of us who actually studied foods and what's in them and want to know how to protect ourselves from disease have written books about it. So I remember, for example, there's another thing that's coming back to mind from my great book, 20, 30 years ahead of its time, called The Skeptical Nutritionist. And this was about another topic, if only I could remember it. I'm, I'm a little hungover, frankly, from a big dinner. Took the dog, and I drank a lot of vodka. I feel great, don't get me wrong. Don't, don't say it's hypocritical. I believe in vodka. I do block, but vodka's a health food if you, you don't do it every night, which I don't. So there was a, a subject in here that I wanted to find. Oh, oh, I remember. It's, um, yeah, it's fava bean hemolysis. I know that's not on everyone's lips. It's a disease we know nothing about. But I remember when I uncovered it, when I was writing this book, how many doctors wrote me who were ahead of their time. They said, oh, my God, Savage, how did you do this? Where'd you find it? Well, I had just gotten my Ph.D. from the University of California, and I was very just fascinated by ethnic diets, and I studied every arcane piece of literature there was, and I came up with some interesting things. And so I found this about the fava beans. I, I've never eaten a fava bean ever, ever since. I'll be right back. Savage. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. A savage republic inside the plot to destroy America lays out the threats we face, prepare you for what's next, and offer solutions to save our republic. Please wake up and fight back before it is too late. You can buy it right now on Amazon or on barnesandnoble.com. A Savage Republic, Inside the Plot to Destroy America by Michael Savage. Thank you for listening. Share it with five others. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yes, we have a uh, belief in freedom of religion, but that's when the word religion has a similar meaning. When you say religion, you generally think of people who believe in God and they believe in doing good and they believe in, believe in leaving people alone. So you say, of course you believe in anyone's way to reach uh, their, their beliefs in any way they want. Buddhist, Christian, Hindu, Jewish, Muslim, doesn't matter. Freedom of religion sounds good. But what if there's a religion that comes along that believes in order for their religion to thrive, they have to kill you or convert you? So you have to say what you have to, you have to curtail that. Then you have to understand that there's no such thing as an absolute when it comes to freedom of. There has to be a limitation on what you mean by religion. If the religion preaches goodness, we, we all agree it's good. But if the, religion, if the religion preaches death to others, then you have to say that's not a religion, that's a political doctrine. 
And that is the problem of the century. And we have a president and a media and a government that refuses to even understand the question, let alone know the answer. So it's up to us to educate them, is it not? Did you hear what I just said? Perhaps one of the most important things I've ever said in all the years I've ever been in radio, and I said it in a way that I think is quite neutral and quite right down the center line. Sure, we believe in freedom of religion, so far as the religion teaches peace and love and the brotherhood of man. But when someone uses the concept of religion to dominate the other religions or to take over a nation then you have to say my friend that's not a religion and I don't care how many cockamamie lawyers with twisted brains from NYU come out at us you're not gonna get away with it we'll throw them in jail or we'll throw you in jail we'll throw every cockeyed lunatic from the ACLU in prison before we let you take over our country so just get it straight don't think you can run that number by me Johnson see now that's the kind of leadership we're all waiting for Someone who can actually discern reality, someone who actually knows reality, and someone who's willing to stand up for reality. Can you name one politician who's willing to say what I just said? No. No, you can't, which is why you have such wonderful faith in politicians. Because you can't get us an iota of truth out of most of them. They're scared to death that if they say one wrong thing, they'll be out of office. I don't even blame them. With the jackals in the media, they're afraid to say a word. But I will tell you this. We're way past worrying about the degenerates in the media. I think that every man must speak his mind, whether he be a politician, a talk show host, or whatever. In order for America to be saved, I think there's only one thing that can save us, and that's the truth itself. And I think in order to get to that truth, all of us must speak out. You know, Martin Luther King Jr., despite all of the uh, flaws, like all of us, he was a flawed man in many ways, and we know what those flaws are. He said something that I'll never forget. I read it years later. I actually heard the man speak outside the U.N. in 1960-something. I remember it. It was quite stirring. He was quite an orator. And he moved me. I didn't know anything about civil rights or the civil rights movement truly at the time. I didn't pay much attention. I was a kid. But he said something I'll never forget. He said, make no mistake about it, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Those are the words of Martin Luther King Jr. Now go tell that to all of the Jew haters that you meet. Go ahead. Yeah, tell that all to the to the Jew haters out there. I think that I'm the elder statesman of conservative talk radio. I actually didn't believe it, but I've, I've reached that point. I'm giving myself a title. I, I know that I'm a national uh, um, uh, phenomenon in many ways, but I am the elder statesman. Most of the guys are 20 years younger than me, which is fine. And some of them are good, but most of them don't even understand what this country has come from. They kind of read about it. But as much as I hate to admit it in a way, I've lived through it. From Eisenhower to Obama in two generations. From Ben Casey to Nurse Jackie in two generations. From mutual assured destruction to assured national destruction, two generations. From Evan Rude to Always Rude in two generations. From John Wayne to Lady Gaga in two generations. From I Spy to I Cry in two generations. What else did I want to tell you about? I cook this fish. Well, first of all, it starts with smelling the fish. I told you I had an aunt, God rest her soul, who would go into a butcher store in the summer wearing a a fur coat into the freezer to because she knew the butcher was a crook and that he would switch meats on her in the freezer. Remember that story about my aunt, God rest her soul? It was a hot August day up in the Catskill Mountains, Moish's Butcher Shop. I hope, he, I hope his, his, his descendants are not listening. And she'd pick out a steak in the cabinet in the front, the, the case, the best, most expensive steak. And she'd say, grind it up for me, make it chop meat. 
Don't worry, he'd say to her, I'll be, I'll be back. And he'd go in the freezer. She always knew he went in the freezer. Put, so sure enough, she'd bring an overcoat and go in the freezer with him because she knew he'd switch meats and give him pre-ground chuck. He, she was right. She wasn't paranoid. I was a butcher boy that summer. I delivered meats. He would go in the bin. Whatever they picked, he put on the top shelf, and he'd come out with the pre-grade, turn the grinder on, mmm, and nothing would go in the grinder. And then he would take the meat. He had pre-ground the chuck meat. He'd bring it out and show it to them with a smile. Take a look at this meat. It's be <laughs> So she knew better than to... But anyway, the point is, she would if she went into a restaurant, which she never did in her entire life. She didn't trust restaurants. She was from the old country. They looked down on people who ate in restaurants. <laughs> Could you imagine the day and age I grew up in? They actually, I, I had amazing relatives. They didn't trust restaurants. They thought it was junk. What do you eat that garbage in restaurants for? <laughs> they assumed all food restaurants was garbage. Only a home-cooked meal was good. I, they were probably right, but anyway, in those days, they didn't go to restaurants. They didn't trust them. Somehow they felt that only like dumb people who drank a lot ate, ate in restaurants. Usually like uh, wasps who didn't know food to begin with. They were all drunk anyway, so they fed them the worst food in like the Park Hotel on Fifth Avenue. They didn't know what they were eating because they were pickled on gin or whatever. So they looked down at anyone who went to a restaurant. <laughs> the point is, is that whatever she ate, she smelled it first like an animal, but she was right. So I picked that habit up, and people think I'm nuts. So if I go in a restaurant, I say to them, okay, I'll have the fish, bring it out first. They won't do it. They won't bring the fish out. Because you got to smell the fish. Otherwise, how do you know how old it is? What do you think sauces are? Ladies and gentlemen, wake up. You know, today, all the cooking today consists of is taking bad food and doctoring it up with trick dressings in order to cover up the fact that it's not prime food. That's the whole reason. Because really good food doesn't need a sauce on it to begin with. Now, the French need a sauce on everything because their food is terrible. Their food is so bad, everything is inferior. The meats are inferior, the fish is inferior, but they learned through the centuries after Napoleon got his butt kicked how to make sauces to cover up the fact that all of their food was inferior to the Italians. You know, because if you look at Italians, they do have sauces, but not like the French with the trick sauces. You know, you know, I've always said I like dogs, but I don't like cats. Cats are over, uh, cats are, uh, dogs are overt and cats are covert. I don't like covert anything. I like everything up front. If a dog growls, I know it's growling. Cat's sneaky, but it always like it makes in a box in a house. You don't know where it is. I don't like that. A dog is up front. You know they walk. Even the way they walk, they're out there. They're out there. It's the same with cuisine. Italian food is like dog-like. It's 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 out there. It's overt. Uh, French food is always covert. It's sneaky. There's always something sneaky about it. We don't know anything about food in this country of this nature. I mean, all we know is what looks good on a plate. We have geniuses who go to cooking school with pimples on their face, and they come out as long as they know how to drizzle olive oil on something uh, and put strawberries and raspberries on steak. They think that they're a genius. I get the star flounder home after the show. I was in a uh, to cook at home mood. Now, don't get me wrong. I eat in restaurants all the time, but I cook at home once in a while. I was in the mood to cook at home. So I get the star flounder. I open the package, and you put your nose right on the fish. It smelled of the sea. It smelled like fish smelled to me. When I once lived in Marblehead, Massachusetts in the 1970s. I was researching a book, and uh, I was living in Marblehead and commuting to um, to uh, the uh, herbarium up at Harvard, the Harvard Herbarium. I remember a whole winter I spent there. And I used to get fish from the fishing boats down at the, uh, believe it or not, right from the boats. And this is what the fish smell like. It was that good for Monterey. So anyway, here's what you do. It's simple. It reminded me of the years I lived in Spain. How hard is it to cook a piece of fish? Not hard at all. You wash it. You dry it. 
You don't need salt and pepper on it. I don't know what the obsession is. I watched that chef on the air. As I said, my mother would have thrown him out of her four-burner kitchen. And the chef says, oh, you got to put a little salt and a little pepper on it. He rolled so much salt in it, you needed a hypertension pill. What's this with the obsession? Fish already has salt in the flesh. You get oil very hot. Now, I mean very hot, but I don't mean sizzling, because the fish will burn immediately. you got to get it hot, but not burning. That means hot, but not burning. That means hot enough that when you put the flesh in there, it's going to cook immediately, not suck up the oil. And then, and I don't mean an inch thick of oil either, you're not deep frying that fish. But you need it to be deep enough that it covers the fish, but not soaks the fish. So everything has a subtlety to it. So you get the oil hot, you slide the fish fillets in there, you do three minutes on one side, and then you turn it over, you do two minutes on the other, and that's the genius, that's the cooking recipe. Now, nobody in the restaurant business will agree with me, because you don't make a living just cooking a good piece of fish in oil. You have to trick it with sauces. I'll be right back. Savage. Home of borders. Language. Culture. The Savage Nation. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. We're living in interesting times where each man literally has to save himself. We have no authority figures to believe in. We have no government to believe in. That's why I wrote Government Zero, and it's not an infomercial. But actually, I want to talk about food instead. And that is the issue of uh, how ethnic foods are very important, uh, both to know what to eat and what not to eat. I'm, I'm coming up with something uh, very, very small here. It's called fava bean hemolysis. And there are people who cannot eat fava beans because they lack the correct enzyme to break down fava beans and what happens is what happens the urine becomes very dark or red shock may develop in bad cases and death can follow did you know that this condition is caused by a lack of glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase that's a that's an enzyme that breaks down the fava bean g6pd you don't have g6pd if you are a curd for example people were warned that eating this type of bean could yield death what else did i want to tell you about Every day I wake up and say, how do I get to the other place without crossing the river? <laughs> I mean, that's really life itself when you think about it. We all want to get to that other, to this place called heaven, rather. We don't want to go to the other place. How do we get to heaven without crossing the river? That's the question. So many of us try visionary experiences with drugs. We try masculine LSD, uh, allegedly drugs that take us to heaven. But often the streets are littered with the exact opposite. If you look at Berkeley, California, you see people wandering around blowing bubbles who were leftovers from the 1960s. They tried to achieve visionary experiences with LSD and mescaline, and they wound up in the gutter. But if you look at religions, if you look at the great paintings of history, you will see visions of heaven. Visionary heaven, fairylands, folklore, religion are all about heaven aren't they our dream for a new government in america which will allegedly give us relief from the hell that this man has put us in is just another dream we want that light we want that unnatural intensity of coloring we want that unnatural significance 
of the golden age. We want the golden age. That's what we want. We want a shining to come down to us. We want significant light to shine down upon us, to come down out of the skies, out of the landscape, to bring beauty to us, in other words. So this is not new to our time. If you go back to the ancient traditions, every religion, every tradition, you find this dream of the Garden of Eden. The Greco-Roman tradition, you find the Garden of the Hesperides, the Elysian Plain, the fair island of Luke, to which Achilles was translated. Now, I may mispronounce some of these places, but I know what I'm talking about. I have an amazing education and an amazing memory. Forgive me for slipping into this in the midst of this pragmatic talk about uh, the situation that we are in and the world is in right now. But really what it comes down to is how do we get away from hell and go back to heaven, the relative heaven of this world before uh, the Cyclops took over the White House. It's like a Cyclops took over the White House. But every time and in every place, people were dreaming of this light-filled paradise. Islands. We all love islands. I don't. I've spent too many years in them to know that they're not paradise. Not paradise at all. In fact, if you live on an island long enough, you realize it's a prison. See, most of the things that we dream are heavenly turn out to be prisons at the end of the day. But that's a philosophical statement. And I'm not really going somewhere with this with a specific conclusion about vote for, you know, Mac Jones or anything like that. I'm just kind of uh, talking to the Hotel Savage. But we're talking about this magic that we all want, these magical, lovely islands in the folklore of America. But they exist in the ancient Celts and the Japanese. Wherever you go, there's always this magical land, the other world of the Hindus, the land that we read about in the Ramayana which is watered by lakes and with golden lotuses. Rivers, beautiful rivers, uh, blessed by the morning sun, adorned by golden beds of red lotus, wherever you go. Whatever the language, whatever the civilization, whatever the people, whatever the society, the same characteristics appear. Vir common to virtually all of the religions and all of the peoples, except one. A dream of paradise without killing. Not a dream of raping virgins in the next world, but a paradise on this earth. A paradise that most people can understand. And unless you have a philosophical understanding of the enemy, you're never going to defeat them. Savage. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and you'll learn something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage Archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.